The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We'll start reading at verse 2. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. But every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, in the Lord, neither is a woman independent of man, nor is a man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Well, this, um, I really can't get through this passage quickly enough to tell you the truth, but it seems like we're going pretty slow. So uh, we enter into a new section. We did this, started last week. Uh, 11 to 14, which which focuses on worship in the church. And Paul is going to deal with uh, some issues in Corinth. And in all likelihood, uh, the issues of men and women in worship in the Lord's Supper come from a report. You remember the report of Chloe's people. And so... Um, Paul's going to deal with issues. So 11, 3 to 16 deals with men and women in worship. 11, 17 to 34 deals with the Lord's Supper, with corrections for the Corinthians, the institution of the Supper, rebuke for their abuse of the Supper, and then instruction on preparation for the Supper. In chapter 12, Paul's going to deal with spiritual gifts in the body of Christ and their proper use. It appears that that they did, in fact, ask regarding spiritual gifts. Uh, 13, chapter 13, love is the motivation for the use of the gifts. 14, tongues and prophecy and order in the church. So what Paul's doing in 11 through 14 is he's addressing abuses that were going on in the church. Or... um, what we might call malpractices, okay? Um, So there's something going on in terms of the men and women and roles of men and women, 
there's certainly some grievous sin going on in the Lord's Supper, uh, and there certainly was abuse of spiritual gifts. But Paul starts with the role of men and women in worship, and that's 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16, which Tom Schreiner says this passage has some features that make it one of the most difficult and controversial passages in the Bible. And uh, the more that I look at this, the more I think that is, that is absolutely true. I'm, I'm listening to some messages that are um, by a pro-head covering person, and he keeps saying, how clear this passage is. And it, it, th- that sort of boggles my mind because there are certain things where the major theme or thrust is clear enough. But this is, this is far from a simple passage. And um, the passage unfolds really in, in sort of four basic sections. I give you the, the, the way that I've outlined it. Men and women in the Trinity, 11.3, and then um, uh, heads while praying, that, that's male and female both, while praying and prophesying, 4 to 6, men and women, image and glory, 7 to 12, and then the practice of the church of God, 13 through 16. So what we're going to do uh, tonight is we're not going to make a whole lot of progress, I suppose, but we're going to look at uh, the four basic views of this text especially as it relates to head coverings, all right? Because that's sort of a big, the big question. Uh, and then we will get to verse 3. Then hopefully next week we'll make a lot more progress in terms of working through the passage. So remember, the, the, the context is corporate worship, all right? That much is clear. Um, everything in this section, Lord's Supper, gifts, prophesying, so forth, everything is in the context of the worship of the local church. And there's no reason to think that uh, when Paul deals with praying and prophesying in uh, the first part of chapter 11 that he's dealing with anything other than what's going on in the public assembly uh, at Corinth. And so that, that's important to keep that overall context in mind, all right? Paul's not talking about what you're supposed to do when you get home or what you're supposed to do when you get to the grocery store. He's talking about how we are to conduct ourselves uh, in, in worship, all right? So the four basic views um, in dealing with head covering begin, number one, there is absolutely nothing applicable about this text today, okay? Now... That, uh, the idea behind this is that this passage, first of all, deals with a custom or a practice that's totally irrelevant to us, i.e. head coverings, and it presents a view of men and women that is absolutely irrelevant to us. Okay? So on both counts, the cultural practice of head coverings and the role of men and women, both of those things are absolutely irrelevant to us. In fact, you can find writers who will say things to the effect that just as sure as nobody wears head coverings anymore, so nobody thinks that a man is the head of a woman anymore. Okay? This is uh, what's called the egalitarian view, and uh, we're going to look at that a little later. And the, the argument for this text from that position is, is quite straightforward. Since we don't, by and large, require women to wear head coverings, 
why in the world should we prohibit women from teaching and preaching and serving as elders and pastors and being ordained? Okay? It's a pretty straightforward argument. Okay? It's, just, it's, it's all just completely irrelevant. All right? uh, the second view is that the woman's hair is her covering. All right? Now, this, uh, this view, which has gained quite a bit of popularity, really camps on verse 15. If a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for or in the place of a covering. Now, the whole view that a woman's long hair is her covering hangs on verse 15. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I don't think that that works throughout the passage. And the reason I don't think it works throughout the passage is because I don't think that Paul makes the argument that her hair is her covering throughout the passage. In fact, by the time he gets to verse 15, there are similarities between her hair and a covering, but her hair is her glory and the covering is her submission. So they're not exactly the same. So it's not just a matter of saying that her hair is a a covering and therefore um, that's all that Paul's talking about. That is is actually clearly not what uh, what Paul's talking about. Uh, Number three, what Paul's talking about here, this view says, is actual head coverings that should be worn today. All right? Uh, now, by the way, by, when, we, when we say head coverings, we'll get into this a little later. We're not talking about veils like Muslims wear, okay? Probably talking about anything used to cover the head, most typically a shawl, all right? That's, that's what's in view. We're not talking about some sort of, uh, um, you know, oppressive Islamic practice, which the burqa is a oppressive practice, okay? Uh, that's, not, that's not what's being talked about. So this view says, look, Paul says head coverings should be worn. He gives the reasons, and so head coverings should be worn. Now, I just want to say that this view has a particular strength, and that is it takes the passage in the most straightforward sense. And, um, you know, if, if, if you don't want to consider anything outside of the immediate text, then this has great strength. And if that view is true, um, by my observation, there's only one of you that's even mildly pretending to observe it. So, um, all right. By the way, um, this is just as much about men as it is women. We focus on the head coverings. (laughs) We focus on the head covering. Yeah, if you have a hoodie, just put it on and you'll be good. Um, we focus on head coverings for the women, but but it is equally taught that that a man is not to have his head covered. Okay, so um, so this view says, look, the passage says head coverings. The uh, women ought to wear head coverings. Then there are two different opinions as to how this works. So should head coverings be worn at all times during worship? Or should head coverings be worn only when women are praying and prophesying? Okay? You can see how that comes out in the text, right? 
It is uh, in the context of women praying and prophesying, which also deserves further explanation, obviously. But there you have, um, during a certain function, they're supposed to have their head covered. So some, uh, by the way, most who practice this, and there aren't very many, so Mennonites, and and, uh, there are some um, Reformed denominations that would practice this. Um, Most of the time, the women don't, pray or prophesy (laughs) in church, and so they have their head covered during the entirety of the service. All right? Um, The fourth view is, this is what Dan Wallace calls um, the meaningful symbol view. All right? So real head coverings are not actually the essential element or aspect of the passage. Um, the, the passage is about something that's bigger than head coverings. So the head covering was a cultural expression that distinguished between men and women. And the covering was a symbol of submission. So the head covering was a, was a cultural practice. This is Wallace's terminology. The head covering was a cultural practice that was baptized into the early church. In other words, it was something that went on outside of the church. Paul, in a sense, baptizes it for its use in the church. But there are other meaningful symbols, contemporary meaningful symbols, that can fulfill the meaning behind the ancient symbol. All right? So this view, this is, it's important to understand that this view is saying the practice itself is, is a symbol of a larger truth. The practice itself is culture-bound. The truth behind the practice is transcendent. Okay? So uh, Wayne Grudem, who holds this view, says this. This is very helpful for explaining. So whatever we think a head covering symbolized in first century Corinth, it does not symbolize the same thing today. And that means if Paul's concern was over what a head covering symbolized then he would not want women to wear a head covering in a situation where a head covering didn't carry the same symbolic meaning. Therefore, if we cannot be sure what the head coverings symbolized for women in the first century, for interpreters differ on this, the very fact that it does not symbolize much of anything to people today, even to Christians, is a strong argument that Paul would not have wanted us to follow it as sort of a meaningless symbol. I think it also means that God himself does not intend us to follow this practice today in a society and culture where it carries no symbolic meaning. So, uh, in other words, what Grudem is saying is uh, if a woman comes into a Christian assembly, uh, so most of you remember our dear, sweet sister Ruth Ann Hawley. And what, what, what was Ruth's trademark? A hat with like a gigantic pin stuck in the back used to fascinate Zach as a little kid. He would look, just be enamored. So, so Ruth looked absolutely lovely wearing her, her hats, right? But what Grudem is saying is that nobody today says, oh, look at that. She's wearing a symbol of, a, of submission to her husband. That, that connection isn't made, okay? And um, in fact, even if you wore, what are the, just the little 
things, doilies or something, um, or is that you put on a tablecloth? Or I, I don't know. I, I should stop while I'm ahead. But just a little thing, you know, that you just sort of attach to the top of your. In our culture today, what Grudem's point is is that nobody says, "Oh, look, there's a symbol of her being in submission to the authority of her husband." Okay, so the cultural connection is now lost. And Grudem's argument and this argument in general basically says because the cultural significance is lost, we need to actually think of, uh, of, of something in our culture that conveys the same truth. Okay? Now, that's going to be the tricky part, and we won't get to that for a couple of weeks. So then, uh, should the equivalent of a head covering be worn at all times during worship or only when praying or prophesying? So there's another complicating factor in this passage um, in, in trying to find, um, uh, so, so, so let's just assume, and, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to roughly argue for the fourth view. So let's just assume that, that we say, okay, the head covering itself no longer conveys anything in our contemporary society. So what, are the, what is the analogous uh, symbol that we could appeal to, right? And it ends up having a, a huge impact on whether or not we think Paul is talking about men and women in general or husbands and wives in particular. Would that actually impact the use of a symbol? Okay, If it's, if it's just to symbolize a wife in submission to her husband, that looks like one thing. If it looks like uh, distinction of gender roles, then the symbol looks different than, than that for marriage, all right? So you can, you can see that this passage has a number of, of incredibly challenging uh, aspects to it. So what we're going to do is we're going to uh, look at verse 3 because verse 3 gives us the theological foundation for the role of men and women. And for Paul... The distinction of roles for men and women is grounded in the Trinity. So Paul says in verse 3, but I want you to understand. Now, just just notice quickly, this follows verse 2. I praise you because you remember me and everything, hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand. So do you think that Paul is looking at whatever the Corinthian practice was, and sees that it needs correction. Yeah, there's no, there's no doubt. This is not something that they were doing right. Okay? Whatever they were doing, it was wrong. Okay? That's just a good rule of thumb for the Corinthian church anyway. Whatever they were doing is probably wrong. Um, but here, Paul says, so I, I praise you for doing uh, these things, following my instruction, but I want you to understand... Right, so you see the contrast and um, and this little expression. I want you to understand. Now, that phrase itself is fairly mild, right? Um, it's very similar, by the way, to the way Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians two one. For I want you to know. Okay, um, Paul uses stronger forms when he wants to teach. Uh, the Corinthians something. So, for instance, in 3.16 and 10.1, it is, do you not know? Right? Or, I don't want you to be ignorant. Both of those statements, which are stronger than the one that's used here, uh, are implying 
an, a, a culpable ignorance on behalf of the Corinthians. This statement, I want you to understand, is much milder. Okay? And so commentators wonder, why is Paul being um, a little mild here? Uh, so let's say whatever the Corinthians are doing, they're goofing it up big time and they are in error and yet Paul is being you know, fairly tactful and pretty mild at this point. And my hunch is that uh, Paul is, is, in a sense, using a milder approach here because he's warming up for the abuses at the Lord's table, which end up being incredibly serious. Okay, So... Again, thinking back of what we looked at last week. So here's Paul, and he needs to correct the Corinthians. Well, you know what he's doing? In a sense, he's he's sort of picking his battles. He's picking how hard he's going to fight. Okay, So this, I take this issue of the head coverings, men and women's roles, to not, for Paul, not to be on the same level of dangerous error as what they were doing at the Lord's Supper, okay? So he's a little more mild. He's a little more uh, kind here. He's going to let it all, he's going to let it rip once he gets to verse 17, okay? But here he is being um, um, relatively patient. And again, that's a good lesson for us. Not everything... um, like I used to have to remind myself as a parent, not everything is a spanking offense. Okay. Well, maybe this is, this is not as big of a spanking offense as what he's going to deal with later. So then he says this, but I want you to understand, you need, you need to understand this, that Christ is the head of every man. So here's, by the way, this, this statement ends up being the, uh, the crux of the passage, okay? The word head, the word kephale, is used nine times in this passage. From verse 3 to 16, nine times. And it is absolutely crucial to understanding what Paul is talking about. And so it's the meaning of this word, kephale or head, that's crucial um, because what is in view is the difference between men and women and how that comes into play in worship, all right? So the common egalitarian exegesis of this takes the word kephale as source, Head as source. Now, let me, let me tell you what happens. The minute that you say the word head means source or origin, what that effectively does is it effectively removes male-female authority submission out of the structure of the text. Okay? That's what it effectively does. So... The text would read 
something like, like this, I want you to understand that Christ is the source of every man and the man is the source of a woman. God is the source of Christ. Okay? And then that ends up being the foundation. Now, the other meaning, and by other meaning, I don't mean there's two valid meanings. The other proposed meaning for kephale is, or head is, is the idea of authority. The idea of authority. So here's here's the the, the competing um, interpretations. So you have the egalitarians that don't like the idea that the man would be an authority over a woman. So kephale means source, and so man is the source of a woman. Okay. Now to be sure, Paul's going to talk about who comes from who later on. But you have to ask yourself. Is that the primary focus of his argument in this chapter? Okay. The other position says, no, head means authority. So Christ is the authority of every man. The man or the husband is the authority of the wife. And God is the authority over Christ. And that's the foundation. All right. So you can, you can see by appealing to these two different meanings for the word head, that you have two, in a sense, very different interpretations. One erases the idea of submission and authority. So here here are some considerations as we think about this. Uh, So is this, by, by the way, is this a big deal? Yeah. Yes. It's a big deal for the church. It's a big deal for home, the home. It, 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 it comes down to whether or not we're going to uh, embrace a, uh, a, a, a hierarchy that God has established or are we going to just say that there is no hierarchy? Right? Does it have implications for the home? And the answer is Yes. Does it have implications for the church? The answer is yes. Can women be pastors? No. Why? Well, at least one reason, because of the Trinity. There are other reasons Paul gives, for instance, 1 Timothy 2.12 and so forth, but... It, is, it makes a huge difference. Can women serve as elders? No. Can women preach or teach to a mixed congregation? I would say no. And the reason is not because Paul was an uptight Jewish rabbi that hated women. The reason is because of who God is and what God did in creation. Which, by the way, transcends culture. What culture was the Garden of Eden? Okay. So think about the, the overall flow of this passage. So as Paul goes through here, and especially the, this, this whole idea um, that we see in the first part, is the male and female relationship here in this passage being predicated on who is the source of each or where is the authority? Or who has the authority? 
Is the passage simply about origins of relationships or hierarchy of relationships? See, Gordon Fee, who is a a full-blown egalitarian, he totally begs the question when he says, this passage is definitely not about authority because the word authority is only used one time in this text. I say that's begging the question because that's only true if the word head doesn't mean authority. If it does mean authority, then you have authority being used once and then the word head being used as authority nine times. Okay? So, <clears throat> scholars have gone back and forth on the usage of the word. Uh, there was a word study war that started about 30 years ago when I was in college and uh, it's been going on ever since. And uh, Wayne Grudem was very much uh, a part of that and still is. Uh, so here, here are some observations to help us kind of weigh through this. Where might be an important source to look and see how the word kephale is used? The Septuagint. Yeah. Vic says the Septuagint. Vic is absolutely right. So how, why, why is the Septuagint going to be important for us understanding how Paul's using the word kephale? Well, because Paul's writing from a Jewish perspective with an Old Testament background. So I'm assuming that the Old Testament that he used is going to be important in forming and shaping the way he uses words. Okay? So here's the interesting thing. You look at the way kephale is used in the Septuagint and it is used to translate the Hebrew word rosh, which means head, which is used as ruler or chief. You can't find one instance in the Septuagint where the word kephale is used to denote source. By the way, in extra-biblical Greek, you are hard-pressed to find uh, indisputable examples where kephale means source. You have disputed examples, which means it might be, might not be, but you don't have any in, uh, indisputed, undisputed passages where kephale means source. So just by use of uh, kephale in the Septuagint, leader or chief. But the other thing is, is that Paul uses this word and he uses it regularly. So we're going to just look at a, at a few examples here. So turn over to Ephesians uh, chapter Five. Ephesians chapter five. Famous passage, right? Verse twenty two Wives, be subject to your own husbands, as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. So let me just ask you a question. When you see the word head used here, what makes sense, authority or source? Does source even make sense here? It doesn't make sense. Wives, be subject to your husbands. By the way, subject to your husbands. That's an authority submission structure. As to the Lord, for the husband is the source of the wife. Well, in what sense could that ever be true? 
First of all, Ariel's older than me. There's no way I could be your source. As Christ also is the head, source of the body. The, the, the parallel actually breaks down. So a wife is to be in subjection to her husband because the husband is the head of the wife in the same way that Christ is the head of the church. And just as the church is to be subject to the headship of Christ, so a wife is to be in submission to the headship of her husband. Okay, So head here is clearly the idea of authority. And authority and submission go together. Um, Paul uses uh, this term again in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. So this is um, Paul's prayer. And uh, he says in verse 22, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So when you look at this passage, he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. The idea of subjection automatically implies what? That headship is is the role of authority. By the way, it it would be... It would be uh, absurd to say that Christ is the source, for instance, in, let's say, Colossians 2.10, where Paul also uses the phrase, so in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. So for Paul, what is the terms rule and authority, as those come together, what are those referring to? Think of Ephesians 6. Rule and authority. It's reference to principalities and powers. It's reference to the demonic realm. So is Colossians teaching us that Christ actually has authority over all rule and authority? Or is Christ the source? It's authority. So... Really, what you end up having is you end up having um, uh, a situation where to try to argue that this means source in 1 Corinthians 11 is really, really stretching. Now, there are some possible but doubtful passages. So Colossians 1.18, Christ is the head of the body, okay? So you could say, in a sense, theologically it's true, Christ is the source of the body, right? But the question is, is whether or not that's what the passage is teaching. And so just because you have some passages that could be questionable, that doesn't actually undermine what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 11. So in the overall context, what makes most sense? What would, by the way... Think of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 11, whatever he's talking about. How would the idea that man is the origin or source of a woman make the point that he's trying to make? What's the point that he's trying to make? Women should have their heads covered while they're praying or prophesying as a symbol of being under authority. 
So how does the idea of origin or source even uh, even further Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 11? And the answer is, it does not. So then the question becomes this, because Paul says that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman. So is not Christ the source of both male and female? Yes. Is not Christ the authority over both male and female? Yes. But is there not a hierarchy under Christ related to male and female? So in one sense, Christ is just the source as the agent of creation of all humanity, male and female. In terms of headship, yes, Christ is head over male and female, those who are united to him. But he has also established, don't really like the, the, the term that much, but he's established a chain of command. Okay, And that's what Paul's teaching in this passage. So he says... Christ is the head of man. In other words, Christ is the one who is in the authority over a man. And then he says, and man is the head of a woman. Now, right here, this is where, this is where we are um, completely out of step with our culture. Okay? But by the way, that, that, that shouldn't surprise us. We're out of step with our culture on all kinds of things. Okay? Um, whether it's, uh, and by the way, think about how many of the things we're out of step with that go right back to Genesis 1 and 2. The creation of man is male and female. We would argue that that, that, that woven into the creation order by God himself is gender distinctions. Male and female. We would also say that woven into those gender distinctions, even in the garden, before the fall, absolutely crucial, before the fall, when, when, uh, when Adam names his wife, that is an exercise of authority. Okay. Um, when it says that It is not good for man to be alone. Before the fall, I will make a helper corresponding to him. This is what Paul's going to say in this very chapter, that the the woman was made for man, not man for the woman. So in other words, there was an order to it. There was an order to it. And so when Paul says that the man is the head of the woman, the the idea is, and I take this to be within a husband-wife uh, situation. I don't think that this means that every man has authority over every woman, all right? So if you go bossing around somebody else's wife and they punch you in the nose, don't expect us to do anything about it, except shake his hand, all right? Um, but the idea is, is that the man is over the authority of the woman, okay? Now, I don't think that we have to go into this, but I always feel compelled to say that the idea of male headship or male authority in the home and in the church is is not 
a matter of male domination. Male domination is the result of the fall. Just as sure as female usurpation is the result of the fall. Okay? So, um, for, uh, for man to be uh, tyrannical in his headship is the result of the fall. Sinful. For man to be oppressive. For man, by the way, uh, the, the way I figure it is, the, as soon as the words come out of your mouth, remember, I'm the head of this family. You're already toast. Okay? The minute that you have to remind somebody, just forget it. Okay? Go back into your bedroom, pray, come back when you're in a more sanctified spirit, and, and hopefully you'll be able to make some progress. But the minute you have to say, hey, look, I'm in charge, you're not. Okay? So domination and usurpation are the results of the fall. But authority and submission are not the results of the fall. Authority and submission are woven into the creation order itself. And the authority that a man is to exercise in the context of, of, of home and church is to be a servant leadership. It's modeled after Christ and his relationship to the church. And Jesus doesn't lord it over the church. Jesus serves the church, loves the church sacrificially. And so the best example of male leadership is the Lord Jesus as being a servant leader who laid his life down for his bride. Okay. Now, Paul then says... And God is the head of Christ. Now, we have to get a little theological here, okay? Anybody object? All right. So, when Paul says that God is the head of Christ, Paul is not making an ontological statement. In other words, he is not saying that God, that is the Father, is the authority over Christ in a way that Christ is subordinate in his person. Okay? By the way, this, this has to do with the difference between orthodoxy and heresy. Okay? When he says God is the head of Christ, that is a functional statement, not an ontological statement. So someone might say, well, why does he end that way? Why doesn't he say God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman? I I think, of course, you never know for sure, but I think that the idea is, is that Paul sort of closes this in. So Christ is the head of man, man is the head of woman, and then closes it with God is the head of Christ in a sense to to remind the Corinthians that such headship and submission does not diminish the dignity or worth of a woman any more than the father's headship over the son diminishes the dignity or worth of the son. Does that make sense? So, So here's the Trinitarian significance of this passage. So first of all, the father and the son are equal. This is, this is our 
This is our understanding of the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all co-equal in substance or in essence. That is, in in ontology, in, in what they are. So, the Father and the Son share fully the essence of deity. So the Father is not more God than the Son. And the Son is not less God than the Father. All right? By the way, if you think that, then, then, then you're primed to be a Jehovah's Witness. Okay? The ancient heresy of Arianism taught the inferior subordination of the Son so that the Son is not God in the same sense that the Father is God. Okay, That's heresy. The Father and the Son are co-equal, right? They're both God. And the Father's not any more God than the Son and vice versa. But just as sure as there is equality in the in the essence of deity there is also distinction in the persons right are you are you tracking in other words the father is always the father Always has been, always will be. The Son is always the, has always been the Son, will always be the Son. The Son, the term, the Son, is not some sort of um, conventional title given to Jesus to help us maybe understand what the relationship is like. The Son is the eternal Son of the Father. So there is unity in essence, diversity in person, right? This is, this is Trinity 101. So the Son is not the Father. And the Spirit is not the Son. And the Father is not the Spirit, okay? So even though they are co-equal and all share the same essence of deity, the fact is, is that they also are are individual persons so sometimes i remind the elders and deacons um don't have to do it so much anymore but years ago we used to do it a lot where we would be praying and we would someone at communion for instance would say and father i thank you for dying on the cross for our sins okay well the father didn't die on the cross for your sins the son died on the cross for your sins The Spirit didn't die on the cross for your sins. The Son died on the cross for your sins. Guess who the only member of the Godhead is to become incarnate? It's the Son. The Father did not become incarnate. The Spirit did not become incarnate. The Son became incarnate. So the Father's always the Father. The Son is always the Son. That's how it always has been. That's how it shall ever be forevermore. Amen. Now, what that also means is that the Father is always the sender and the Son is always the sent one. 
The fa- find one place in the Bible where the Father is sent. You won't find it. The Father's the sender. The Son is the sent one. By the way, the Spirit is the sent one who's sent from the Father and the Son. So you have Father, supreme sender. Okay. You have Son, sent one. Father, Son, sender of the Spirit. All right? And you don't mix those roles up. Okay? So, in a sense, what happens is there is, there is equality in the Godhead, okay? but there is diversity. Now, I'm arguing that Paul's theology of the Trinity is the foundation for understanding the roles of men and women. Men and women are equal in person before God. Man is not superior to woman. Woman is not inferior to man. Co-equal image bearers. By the way, if you if you think that 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 women are inferior, then you are you're in sin. Okay? You are in sin and you're stupid, but you're in sin. Okay. Let's just face it. We don't like to admit it, but women are usually smarter and the list could go on. Okay? Right, Steve? <laughs> so the idea is, is that there is, there is absolute equality as bearers of the Imago Dei, the image of God. But that does not mean that there is not diversity within the roles of male and female. So the gender, male and female, the genders, male and female, also exhibit a difference. It's a difference in design. That difference is not based on inferiority or superiority. The difference is simply based on difference in design. Just as sure as the son is the one who um, accepts the will of the father to come and do the will of the father, and it's the son who becomes incarnate, and it's the son who lays down his life. So in the incarnation, is is the son subordinate to the father? In the incarnation. Absolutely. Absolutely. The son is subordinate to the father in that the son takes upon himself the responsibility to carry out the work of redemption, which is the fulfillment of the will of the father. But there is not a single solitary second in which somehow that indicates that the son is less than God. So the role distinction... In, in male and female relationships is a part of God's design. Now, it's hard to say exactly what the Corinthians' problem was. Okay? There are times where you're reading the Scripture and you, you, don't, you don't have enough information 
to know for certain what the background is. And that's certainly the case here. But I think what I would propose, if you think back to 1 Corinthians 7 when we were studying that, if you remember, we might think about the way in which Paul was arguing that each man should have his own wife and each wife her own husband, right? So I argued when we went through that passage that that there was in Corinth a mentality of super-spirituality that put people, especially women, beyond marriage as if they, as if they uh, had reached some angelic state. So they were encouraging people not to marry. Why? Well, because they were in that angelic state where you're neither, given, uh, you're neither marrying or given in marriage. Okay? But it was a super-spirituality, Right? I think that it's possible that that mentality then takes hold in terms of worship. So thinking that they're more like angels and, and therefore more or less genderless. And what Paul's driving at here is the fact that gender is, is not irrelevant when it comes to the worship in the church. Gender is not irrelevant. In fact, it is profoundly relevant. And so, is this relevant for us today? And the answer is yes. We have two, we have two competing irreconcilable perspectives within the body of Christ today. The first, as I mentioned, is egalitarianism. That's the view that all gender distinctions are null and void. Thus, leadership is equally shared. Giftedness is equally shared between men and women. And so, are there passages in the Bible that restrict leadership on the basis of gender? And the answer is yes. What do egalitarians do? They reinterpret those passages in light of a feminist hermeneutic or they simply dismiss them as emerging from a male-dominated Bible. So, egalitarians have a favorite Bible verse. Anybody know what it is? Yeah, Galatians 3.28. We are all one in Christ, neither bond nor free, Jew or Greek, male or female, all one in Christ. So they go, look, no more gender roles, no more gender distinctions. It's their favorite favorite Bible verse. Well, what they do is they take that and then they look at uh, 1 Timothy 2.12. I don't permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. And so you know what they say? They say either one of two things. I'm sure that you have more than that, but the two basic ones are, so you've got Galatians 3.28, no male or female. That's Paul, the Christian apostle. Don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. That's Paul reverting back to his Jewishness. Who should we listen to? Listen to Paul the Christian apostle, not Paul the backslidden Jewish rabbi. Okay. That's, that's the way it's done. By the way, this, this view was very popular, was made popular by a professor at Fuller Seminary in the late 1970s, Paul King Jewett, and um, there was a group of homosexual students at Fuller 
who took the same hermeneutic and applied it to the passages where Paul dealt with homosexuality. That's just Paul the cranky, anti-homosexual rabbi. Don't have to listen to it. Okay? Okay. Well, see, that's not, um, that's not the way we handle God's word. Right? So the other view, the other way that egalitarians take passages that seem to be restrictive is, is to say, well, they are so culture-bound that they're just no longer relevant to us today. Okay? Now, by the way, is this even a... Uh, sh- should this even be something that we, that, we, that we struggle against or even worry about? And the answer is a resounding yes. And the reason is, is because what was the, the, the main issue back in the, in the 1980s male and female gender roles, now guess what the issue has become based on that? And that is whether or not there's such a thing as gay Christians. Sometimes the slippery slope argument's true. So this view of egalitarianism is sometimes called uh, evangelical feminism. And let me just say that there's nothing evangelical about feminism. Feminism is a war against Genesis 1 and 2. The other view, when I was in college, it was called the hierarchical view. It has since changed for the better, complementarianism. And that's the view that God, that the order that God created, he created with gender distinctions. The concomitant responsibilities that complement each other. Equality in personhood is not... The issue, that's a given. Both men and women are equal before God, but distinction in roles is the issue rooted in the nature of God and in creation. And so we have to understand that, that egalitarianism itself... So let me just do this. When do you think egalitarianism started in the church? <laughs> yeah, I, you could probably make a case that maybe the, the Corinthians were, were there, right? The most common answer is, is that, it, well, the feminism of the 1960s, right? You have to realize this goes back before the feminist movement. Congregation and, congregational and holiness churches were ordaining women to the ministry back in the middle, late 1800s. They did it not out of an idea of feminism. They did it out of pragmatism. When Sister Phoebe see, preaches, there seems to be some really good fruit. Why would we restrict that? Right? In the 60s, though, it became ideological. Okay. And with the feminist movement, the idea was that the... the, the Culture was influencing the church at that point and compelled many denominations to begin ordaining women to the ministry. And by the way, the the, the denominations that were ordaining women to the ministry in the 80s and the 90s because of cultural pressure are the same denominations that are ordaining homosexuals today. And so I just submit to you that what Paul is talking about here in this passage, even though there's a lot of ambiguities and a lot of difficulties, is incredibly important for us. It's incredibly important for our understanding of, of, 
of who does what in the home and the church. It's incredibly important. So we may disagree about the use of head coverings or something like that, but there, there are things that are much larger that are at stake here. And the church needs to be awakened to these things. We need to talk about these things. We can't just assume these things. You know what happens when the church just starts just to assume these things? The next generation comes along and they don't know why we do these things. They just look at it as something that was assumed. Empty tradition. And then it gets jettisoned. And you can't depend upon the next generation to be exegetically, hermeneutically, and theologically astute enough because they're going to be uh, enculturated by the spirit of the age. How many young people, young Christians, do you think to go off to university and maintain a complementarian view of males and females? let alone a heterosexual view of male and female. Right? So these things cannot be assumed. We have to teach them. We have to be clear on them. And we have to be committed to the authority of God's word, even if it makes us look like a bunch of old-fashioned idiots. You know, at the end of the day, who cares what the culture thinks of us? Look at the culture. Do you really weigh their opinion? It's counting much? I mean, their hero is Lady Gaga. Come on. So God help us to be faithful to his word. All right. So next week we'll see whether or not we should put a hat on before at least the women. So, Lord, thank you for this passage. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to be uh, courageous and wise in applying these things. And we ask for your help. Lord, we look around us and we see how much trouble this world is in and how rebellious our culture is and We pray that you just help us, help us to to fight the good fight against the spirit of the age. Help us to be faithful in Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.